there has been a great deal of teaching taking place already here this evening. In Colossians 3.16, it still says, doesn't it? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And that was some powerful teaching, wasn't it? It's well with my soul, with your soul, as you and I sang that with such vigor and with such enthusiasm. It surely is good for us to be able to turn our attention and let the Word of God dwell in us as we learn from it and apply it to our life even tonight. You may notice on the wall to my left we'll be taking up another lesson in a series of lessons that we began almost six months ago now. It was a series prompted by that public discussion that was held between Jack Honeycutt and Michael Brauner back near the end of the month of May. In fact, it's just been a few days short of six months ago at this point. And as we listened with some intensity during the course of those two nights of discussion, we noticed a number of features and issues that were in fact brought to bear that you and I have found a bit of issue with as Mr. Brauner made those assertions. In fact, as you'll notice on this slide, we came to appreciate, didn't we, that earlier we looked at a couple of lessons that asked us to look with rather careful notice as to what the Word of God has to say. First of all, on the subject of how many faiths are there? Mr. Brauner thinks there's at least three. And you and I noted that seems to be very difficult to harmonize with verses like Ephesians 4 verse 5. And yet in another lesson we notice the character of the nature of the plan of salvation. What is it that's involved in conversion? And as we looked at that one, we again studied that in detail as well. Tonight, as you can see on this slide, we will cast a very strong spotlight on the nature of baptism itself. Let's begin the lesson then on the next slide by bringing back to the forefront of our thinking one of the assertions that Mr. Bronner made during the course of those two nights of presentation. Let me ask you to notice that Mr. Bronner rather emphatically made the following assertion. He asserted that baptism very clearly and rather overwhelmingly is a work. And because of that, he went on to immediately say that one is not saved by works and therefore it is not possible that baptism is necessary to be saved. In fact, that was a very strong argument he made on, for the most part, the first evening. As you'll notice on that slide, he quickly brought us to consider verses like John chapter 3, verse 18, as well as John 3, verse 36. And you and I shall look at those a bit later in the lesson this evening. As he called our attention to those passages, his whole thrust was, in terms of belief, that is a matter which is, of course, vital for salvation. And at that point, apart from any baptism or anything like it, a person can make claim to being saved from sin and understand fellowship with God. Now may I ask you to notice, please, already at the bottom of that slide, Mr. Bronner was incorrect in that assertion. He did not state matters consistent with the Word of God. And tonight, as you and I look with some care and with some intensity at the New Testament teaching of baptism, I would ask that we reflect again on just how great a thing that is. I realize in the history of the church, baptism has always had a very vital and important role because as we shall see tonight, that is a critical part of what is the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel message. 
But you and I each know that especially since the denominational days have taken center stage about half a millennium ago, that there have been many opportunities in which some have taken to lessen the force and thrust. And many, of course, do not think baptism is required at all. It is with that in mind that tonight we shall look at a number of New Testament statements about it, building up to, of course, what is the Word of God and its perspective toward those things. May I call to your attention at this point, as we think about a number of things in the 27 books of the New Testament, we'll begin tonight, quite frankly, by looking at some of the features of the gospel accounts themselves. Let's turn the slide then to that, and remember, it's not our wish to do anything except to allow the Bible to speak on this subject. Mr. Braun or Mr. Honeycutt, of course, discussed at length, and Jack, of course, made the strong assertion based on the Word of God that baptism in water is required for, the, for, for salvation, and Mr. Bronner denied that assertion. And as he did so, he made in many ways the statements we've already asserted tonight. As you and I come to this slide, let's give some thought to the gospel accounts. We understand well then that in the early days of those accounts, the Lord Jesus had not even gone to the cross yet. And yet already much is to be learned about baptism itself. Let's begin with a baptism administered by John the Immerser. John the Baptist, if you please. Isn't it a fascinating thing to notice that in the days of the Old Testament, one does not find an explicit teaching relative to an ongoing demand of God for the Jews to be baptized. Now, there was baptism in light of the priests and their entrance into the tabernacle. They had to wash in the laver. We learned that from the book of Exodus, of course. But as far as an ongoing and continuing teaching relative to that, we seemingly don't find a great deal of it. But isn't it interesting that suddenly John the Baptist comes on the scene? Here was one who, of course, was just a little bit older than Jesus, and yet the Old Testament had foretold that he was going to be the forerunner of the Christ. He was going to be the one preparing the way for the coming of the Great One Himself. And yet, one of the critical things that John administered, and in fact he emphasized it, was baptism. May I call to your attention some of these verses. In Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, the record is given about John the Immerser. And when we arrive at verse 5, it says that all Judea and Jerusalem and yea, all the region of Jordan went out to John to be baptized of him. Isn't that intriguing? Again, as you read the Old Testament, you do not find any verses insisting on that. But when John came, he preached it and they listened. So many individuals were moved and prompted to give thought to this, which was an important matter, to be baptized. And you and I know that the baptism that John administered, it was a baptism that was a burial. It required much water, John 3.23. John didn't baptize in places where there was only a small amount of water. John baptized where there was much water. Isn't it fascinating to notice in light of that, that the text tells us, Mark's gospel account opens rather immediately with these observations. This baptism administered by John, it was for the remission of sins. In other words, it was paving the way 
for that great baptism, which of course Jesus Christ would command His apostles to in fact take care of, and what has remained through the course of time for you and me to insist upon today for the remission of sins. By its very nature, that highlights there was a great importance to that baptism. It wasn't a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. You might notice as well in Luke 3, verse 3, as reference was given to, in fact, that baptism again administered by John, it was an overwhelmingly powerful matter. So much so that the record in Matthew chapter 3 is that Jesus Himself came to the Jordan River and desired to be baptized by John. Now, you and I notice Jesus was not baptized because He needed sins forgiven, because He never had any of them. But He was baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. And as He did so, He formed and set a rather powerful pattern about the importance, the significance, the insistence, and the place occupied by baptism. Maybe it's in light of that that you'll notice about the middle of that slide. Jesus taught baptism. Now this again was before He went to the cross, but He even, in light of the insistence of what John the Immerser was doing, Jesus taught about baptism. In John chapter 4, verses 1 and following, the record is given to you and me how that Jesus Himself preached about the integrity and the importance of baptism, but Jesus didn't do the baptizing. He let His apostles take care of that. But suffice it to say... It was already a matter of vital significance. You might notice even nextly, the powerful lesson that you and I can notice about that baptism. And the baptism that not only Jesus preached, the baptism that John, in fact, himself preached and practiced. All of these things were early in the gospel accounts, and yet we already begin to see there was a significance to baptism. It was not a matter to be overlooked, and it was not a matter to be ignored. May I call your attention to Luke chapter 7. There's a rather interesting passage there that has something to say about the baptism that John the Immerser administered. In verses 29 and 30 of that chapter, it says, And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves being not baptized of him. The message of those two verses is rather clear, isn't it? Those who were justified even under that dispensation at that point in time, were the very ones who submitted to the baptism of John. But yet it was quick to say in verse 30 that several lawyers and Pharisees rejected the counsel of God. Oh, how do we know they rejected it? Because they refused to be baptized. And may I say that today that same pattern holds true, not that the baptism of John the Baptist is still in force, but anybody who refuses baptism is still rejecting the counsel of the God of heaven. Because as we'll see tonight, so many times the Word of God rather point blank affirms this insistence by Jesus Himself and the inspired New Testament writers in relation to that subject. As you come near the close of that slide with me, our Savior commanded it. After He had gone to the cross... 
and after He Himself had been resurrected on that wonderful Lord's Day morning, it was He, as He met with those apostles in succeeding days, that it was to them in light of the world lost in sin that He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Luke's version reads like this in Luke 24, verses 46 and 7. Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Matthew's version. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. It's almost as if on one of those last occasions that Jesus left those wonderful commissioning words with His apostles, teach and baptize. Perhaps it's in light of that that let's develop the rest of our lesson this evening by reflecting on a number of the verses not only from the Lord Himself, but the Apostle Paul and others, calling to our attention the placement, the role of baptism. Mr. Bronner had many things to say during that public discussion, again, about baptism. He was denying in many cases that which the Bible clearly teaches. But as you and I reflect on them, let's begin at least like this. As the New Testament describes it, baptism is an act that takes place. It's not something that's just in the mind. It's not something that's just an emotion. It really is an action. But how significant, how moving, how stunningly overwhelming. To develop that more thoroughly, why don't we notice the way Paul addressed it in Romans 6. Beginning in verse 1 of that chapter, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together with Him, so shall we be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Those first five verses of Romans 6 have set before us the fact that baptism is a beautiful act of submission. It would be entirely possible to dunk someone beneath the water and never baptize them. That person has to submit to the reality of what's taking place, relinquishing control of that which is them in its entirety, to King Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a beautiful act of submission. No wonder as you and I develop it. We learn in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 4 the attachment that it has in light of that which our Savior Himself endured. We noticed a moment ago that baptism is a burial. And you and I have witnessed it in such a way that we never cease to be impressed. Here's a human being, a person who has made confession of the reality of the name of Jesus Christ. As that person has made that statement, that I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and I do so with all my heart. This person is now submissively 
plunged beneath water. Not that there's any salvation in terms of what the chemicals in the water themselves do, but it's what the water allows one to contact. Notice that when our Savior Himself died, Romans 15 verses 1 to 4 tell us that the gospel message centers around this. The death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. That's the core elements of the gospel. And yet in baptism, you and I notice it's this powerful submission in which we are able to reenact that. Isn't it true that as you and I appreciate it, we can see the parallel so powerfully. When a person believes Jesus to be the Son of God, having become acquainted with the teaching of the gospel, the reality of what happened on that old rugged cross 20 centuries ago, that person upon the cognizance and the reality of that moment realize I'm lost and that person wants to do something about it. In the reality of that belief, he or she makes a change. They repent. They don't continue living a life of sin. They don't proceed to live in that which has been done in the past knowing that it's wrong. For repentance won't permit that. So you'll notice something immediately powerful in repentance An old man of sin dies. He dies. Now what is it that's done to a body that's dead? You bury it because it's dead. That's what happens in baptism. That old man of sin died at the point of repentance. The words of the the confession have been such that fullness of life has been directed to Christ and now properly the right thing to do is to bury that old man of sin. No wonder then, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Behold, all things are passed away. All things are become new. And so it is in baptism, the old man of sin doesn't come back out of that water. He was buried and it stays there. But in newness of life, that new creature in Christ arises. A person is now saved and a person who's a member of the body of Christ. That individual has been made alive because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Though one time dead in trespasses and sins, now very much alive spiritually because contact with the blood of Jesus has been made. You may notice as we come to the fourth point, it's time then to observe that text that Brother Adam read earlier. Baptism saves. May I call to your attention 1 Peter 3.21. Beginning in verse number 18 of that chapter, Peter had made a rather powerful presentation about what happened when Jesus, through Noah, preached. As that preaching was done, we remember that there were some that were unjust, and as they, of course, had opportunity to respond, Noah and his family did. And then this point is made. Verse 21. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that passage began with the like figure. That's that's very interesting, isn't it? In the days of Noah, you and I well know that the waters of the flood led to the death of an overwhelming number. They were outside the ark and they died. 
But the very same waters that led to their death lifted the ark to safety. And so water was a key element, a key matter in the salvation of Noah and his family. The waters of the ark provided the buoyancy, the force, if you please, moving the ark upward to safety above the raging torrent that was beneath it. And Peter says the like figure. That was an Old Testament type, and now it's antitype, he says, is baptism. And Peter was quick to say that baptism doth also now save us. One can try at length to alter, to sidestep, to change, to modify that which the text says, but it just isn't possible. Baptism saves us. A person can't claim salvation without it. A person can't claim to be right with God in terms of having sins forgiven without it. You might also notice that it's at this point that we might observe this. Belief alone that many like to place to such high prestige. There are many instances in the Bible of individuals who did believe, and yet the text is quick to remind us those were not right with God. In John 12, verses 41 and 42, reference is made to some who, who believed but did not confess Christ because they were afraid they'd be cast out of the synagogue. Now, did their belief prompt them to be saved? Of course not. They were ashamed of Jesus. They were ashamed of making confession of Him. And didn't Jesus also remind us in Matthew 10, verses 32 and following, that if you deny me, I'll deny you before the Father. We mustn't be afraid of Him and mustn't refuse to, to acknowledge Him. May we also notice in James 2 verse 19, references made to the devils, and they are said to believe. They even tremble. But we know they're not saved. Because 2 Peter 2 4 says, they are bound in everlasting chains in the matter of darkness, awaiting the day of judgment. Belief alone has never been enough to save. And it still doesn't. Because you see, baptism is a critical element that is said to save. Let's look at some additional matters in that on this next slide. You may perhaps immediately notice with me that the book of Acts is filled with examples reminding you and me about what is involved in the accomplishment of salvation. We'll not take the time tonight to revisit all of those conversion accounts. But suffice it to say, there are ten of them. Ten cases in which you and I can look by words of inspiration as to what happened, when did it happen, how did it happen, and what was the agency that brought it about. All we have to do is to look at those instances and those conversion accounts and as we study them and appreciate them, synthesize and harmonize them, we are led to perhaps just select one or two of them. And as we do that, let's notice, first of all, on that sweet day of Pentecost in Acts the second chapter, here, of course, Jews had gathered to celebrate the Pentecost. And as they did so, the Holy Spirit came upon those apostles and they began to preach in a number of languages that they themselves had never learned. And as the events of that day unfold, Peter was quick to say, this is that that was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Acts 2.16, as Peter dips back into the history of the book of Joel, 
in verses 28 to 32 of Joel chapter 2, statements had been made about the nature of what was to happen. And that was written 800 years later. That was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Aren't you impressed with the control that God has over the moments and movement of time? And yet as that day unfolded, we notice they were pricked in their heart. Verse 37, as Peter and the others preached about the death, the burial, the resurrection, the coronation of Jesus, and that which the God of heaven had brought about through Him, some of them that day were pricked in their heart, roughly 3,000 of them, and they cried out, not as a matter of option, but as a matter of necessity. Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were moved to compel and ask the question as vital as it was. Peter was an inspired man when he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We notice in verse 41, Then they that gladly received His word were baptized. So those that gladly received what Peter and the others by inspiration said, happily submitted to baptism. Those that didn't rejected what the counsel of God was. And you notice that on that slide, may I say to you then that there's still an ark of safety today. Just like the waters of the days of Noah lifted that ark to safety, there is still a sweet ark of safety today. It's of course the church of our Lord. Let's come to our next point and develop that in the following way. Some might have the impression that somehow baptism is a physical washing. It by some means is a matter that perhaps is no more than that. Now that's an incorrect conclusion. It does involve water, but it's not a physical washing. Isn't that what Peter just said? The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh. Baptism is not that kind of washing. It's a spiritual cleansing. It's a cleansing by which the sins of life, the conscience is even purified. As you and I develop that in the following way, wasn't it true that Jesus in speaking to Nicodemus said in John 3 verses 3, 4, and 5, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that's an absolutely exhaustive ultimatum. Rebirth or you'll never see the kingdom. Nicodemus was a bit perplexed. How can this be? Seeing a man is old, can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus in verse 5 said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Entrance into the kingdom is predicated on a rebirth by water and spirit. There again, we notice the presence of water. It is not merely a belief matter. It requires an action that includes water. Nicodemus understood that. In fact, we notice so many others in the book of Acts appreciated it so wonderfully. It is in light of that, you might notice Titus 3 verse 5, in which much later in the New Testament, Paul writing to Titus reminded him about the washing of regeneration 
and that which is accomplished as one responds in obedience to that which is the demands of the Word of God. Maybe it's in light of that that you and I can take up this next point. These powerful passages. Aren't you impressed with the way the Revelation describes that impressive scene in which there's 144,000 indeed, but there's an innumerable multitude standing before the very presence of the God of heaven. And they are described like this. They were washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now that doesn't happen in belief. And it doesn't even happen in repentance. Nor does it even happen in confession. The only time the New Testament describes that washing is in connection to baptism. And aren't you and I impressed to notice that these are in heaven? And we look forward to that too. Revelation 7.14 presents that truth. And later we see it again, hinted at in Revelation 14. And one last time, we notice early in the book in Revelation 1 verse 5. As we arrive at our next point of the evening, thinking about baptism and how the New Testament presents it, haven't we been impressed even to this point? But yet we note this. Peter put it like this at one point in verse 21 of 1 Peter 3. The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. The answer of a good conscience. May I suggest that as we reflect on what is involved in the accomplishment of a good conscience... We notice its answer involves baptism. So a person can't claim to have a conscience in as much as the Lord would wish it to be apart from baptism. And yet this good conscience leads us to some of those additional statements about what the blood of Christ can accomplish. For instance, in Hebrews 9 verses 11 to 14, a description is given about how that you and I are blessedly beneath a far better covenant and Jesus' tabernacle, that which is accomplished in His body, brings us to verse 14, in which because He submitted to the nature of the eternal Spirit of God, you and I and our attachment to that too can realize even the conscience is purified as we ourselves submit to obedience in the gospel. Aren't you delighted as you think about the purification of even the conscience? It's not just that the outward matters of guilt attached to sin are cleansed in baptism. It's even the conscience is purified as one obeys the gospel, 1 Peter 1.22. Developing that point might bring us to here. Baptism, as we noted earlier, does involve submission on our part as we permit somebody to plunge us beneath the surface of some water. That requires one to trust the person doing the baptizing. It requires that one submit himself in humility to that act. But may I say in the accomplishment of it, Paul makes this statement in Colossians 2. In baptism, there's the operation of God. God is performing an operation in baptism. Perhaps we don't think about that often, but when we see somebody immersed... At the moment that's happening, God is performing some surgery. He is removing in a spiritual way all the excesses and all the sins and guilts of that person's life. And they're no more. And that's a remarkable thought, isn't it? 
but Paul described it as literally an operation of God in which as that takes place, baptism is a beautiful presentation in which in that submission we see God acting through the blood of Christ to remove that person's sins, forgiving them. They're remitted. Perhaps in light of that, how glad it is to appreciate then the reception when we see someone submit to baptism. Some might think that baptism's inconvenient. May we never think that. It's one of the sweetest things we're ever able to witness. Someone going into that water a sinner and coming out a saint. Coming out a Christian. Coming out saved from sin and now bound on the roadway, that straight and narrow way that leads to everlasting life. It's no wonder that baptism has been a critical part of faithful gospel preaching for 2,000 years now. And it'll be until the end of time. Because it cannot be substituted. It can't be excised and removed. For if you do that, you're committing spiritual abortion. You bring to the point of a person who perhaps has made statement of belief and repentance, and yet if you don't immerse them, they're never born anew into Christ. And that's a tragedy. May I say, in light of those things, that our study of baptism brings us in addition to this. Our sixth and final point. Baptism adds to the church. We know that because the New Testament rather clearly affirms it. Back on that scene of Acts chapter 2, we noticed a moment ago, they that gladly received His word were baptized, and they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. That's verse 41 of Acts chapter 2. Six verses later in verse 47, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. You'll note with me that God did the addition to the church. Peter didn't do it. Paul, John, any of the others. It was the Lord that did it. And then rightfully so, for the church belongs to Him. Didn't He say, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? Matthew 16, 18. And do we not read in Acts 20, 28? that as Paul addressed those elders of the church in Ephesus, take heed unto yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. I suppose in light of those things, you and I can notice that baptism has been spoken of as an act that's a burial, an act of submission, an act that perhaps in the final analysis brings us to one additional passage. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, as Paul was addressing that church in Corinth, wasn't it true that to them he said that you were baptized by the Spirit into the body? Now how were they then such that they became members of the body of Christ? Had they become Christians? They were baptized into it. And so it is in Galatians 3, 26 and 7, You're all the children of God by faith of Christ Jesus, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Nobody has put on Christ unless they've been baptized into Him. Nobody has become a member of the church unless they were baptized into it. It doesn't matter what men may suppose or think. 
And maybe in light of those things, we've come full circle. We lift high the banner of baptism because lovingly Jesus did. And Paul did. And the other New Testament preachers did. Didn't Philip preach it so sweetly in Acts chapter 8? Men and women, when they gladly heard that word, they submitted to baptism even in Samaria. It may be tonight that someone here would wish to do that too. Let's close our lesson and conclude it with one final slide. A slide of conclusion. Where we have thought about that public discussion that occurred roughly six months ago, although Mr. Bronner denied it, denying the need and essentiality and necessity of baptism, he was mistaken in that. We continue to pray for him and all who feel that way because Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Tonight, as you and I are thankful for that, I know that so many in this audience attended to that need perhaps years ago. Think back on it often. Don't forget the day you were immersed. It really was an eternally momentous day for you. Your sins were forgiven that day. You became a Christian that day. You were washed in the blood of the Lamb that day. And your name was put in the book, in the book of life. Think back often to that day and what it means to you. And let it be a continual prompting matter of faithfulness to you as you walk through the matters of this life hand in hand with the one who died for you on that cross. You made contact with His blood that day. But tonight it might be that someone has forgotten about it or perhaps you have begun to live a life that is no longer reflective of what you knew that day. Why not come back to your first love? Why not again, if that is a need, come before us tonight, make repentance of those sins if they're of a public character in a public way and beseech brethren to pray to God for you. And we'd be honored to do it. If tonight there'd be anyone with a need that we may help in a public way, we would urge you to let us know that and don't leave this building tonight in a condition that's not a saved one. Earlier tonight we sang that song, It is well with my soul. Did we sing that with courage and confidence? I trust we did. May I say that our baptism is what allows us to say that with such courage and confidence. And tonight, if we could be of help to anybody in either of those ways, why not take care of those needs at once while together we stand and while we sing?